Inspiring solutions to save America one show at a time. Are you ready to get on board? Tuesday, 8.48 a.m. Phil, there's a fire on my floor. I love you, Phil. I love you. I don't know if I'm going to be okay here. I love you so much. I love you. I'm in the World Trade Center. The building was hit by something. I, I don't know if I'm going to get out, but I love you very much. The wind is howl Across the fruited plains Our flag flies high America America God sheds his grace on thee God lifts us up From sea to shining sea, three hours of bold truth and excellence. The Wendy Bell Radio Program. Welcome back. Hour number two of the Wendy Bell Radio Program as we remember 22 years after 9-11. I think part of the challenge of today is to explain to our children why it matters so much. Only one of my sons was alive, and he was a baby. They know what we teach them, and teach them we must. I want to read to you a very beautiful Website. I want to read to you the words on the National Park Service website from the Flight 93 National Memorial, which is about an hour from where we are broadcasting right now. Because it tells the story that is different than how you might imagine those moments were. None of us can imagine panic and horror and what it would be like to make a phone call that you thought, no, you knew, was going to be the last your family ever heard from you. And yet the story that emerges specifically from Flight 93 is of a different of a different narrative. 
It wasn't a plane of victims. It doesn't sound like people were shrieking and screaming and losing their minds. It didn't sound like those individuals on board were scared, per se. Because they were united. When United Airlines Flight 93 was hijacked, 13 passengers and crew members responded by placing phone calls to the authorities, to United Airlines, and of course, to their family members and friends. Now, the FBI tells us that 37 phone calls were placed from onboard Flight 93 between 928, when the plane was hijacked, until the time of the crash at 10.03. 35 of those calls were made on the air phones located on the back of the seats in the last nine rows of the plane. Credit card records reveal the time of the calls, the air phone caller's name, the number or the numbers they dialed, the duration of the call, and the row from which those calls were placed. These phone records were entered as evidence during the sentencing trial of Zakarias Musawi in 2006. And according to the 9-11 Commission report, the series of calls from the flight provided vital information both to the ground and to the passengers. Calls from on board the plane revealed some things I think we probably didn't know. Some we did, obviously, that the plane had been hijacked, that the hijackers had knives, that they had entered the cockpit, that they had a bomb, that they wore red bandanas and that the passengers were forced to the back of the plane. They also reported that a passenger had been stabbed and that the victim had died. Two individuals were also lying on the floor of the aircraft, injured or dead, possibly the captain and the first officer, and a flight attendant had also been killed. Through these phone calls, the passengers and the crew members learned that the World Trade Center towers were struck by two commercial airliners and that the Pentagon was also struck by one. A chronological listing of the phone calls made between 9.28 and 10.03 includes transcripts of three of the calls which were recorded. All of the times are in Eastern Daylight Time, and they were all made on air phones unless noted. All of the information is based on the best available data and evidence, and I just wanted to read you a timeline of these calls. At 9.30... Two minutes after the plane was hijacked, from row 24, ABC, passenger Tom Burnett phoned his wife, Dina, and they spoke for 28 seconds. According to the FBI, Burnett was speaking in a quiet voice and asked his wife if she had heard about other planes. Dina Burnett advised her husband that two planes had flown into the World Trade Center. Thomas Burnett asked if they were commercial. She reported that that was unidentified at the time. 
She then stated it seemed that her husband knew other flights had crashed into the World Trade Center, although this was never specifically brought up. And Thomas Burnett mentioned during this conversation that the hijackers were talking about flying the plane into the ground, but the location was not specified. Then unidentified flight attendants in rows 34 and 33 called United Airlines speed dial fix number. It's like an emergency number. But those calls were only connected for a matter of seconds. At 9.35, seven minutes after the hijacking from row 33 DEF, flight attendant Sandy Bradshaw called that speed dial fix number at the United Airlines maintenance facility in San Francisco and talked to them for five minutes and 53 seconds. Her call was first answered by a United maintenance employee and was subsequently taken over by a manager at the facility who described the flight attendant as shockingly calm. According to the 9-11 Commission, the flight attendant reporting from the back of the plane told the maintenance employees that hijackers were in the cabin behind the first class curtain and in the cockpit. They had announced that they had a bomb on the plane. They'd pulled a knife. They'd killed a flight attendant. The manager reported the emergency to a supervisor who passed the information to the United Airlines Crisis Center. The manager then instructed the airphone operator to try to reestablish contact with the plane, but that was unsuccessful. At 9.36 in row 25 DEF, Mark Bingham dialed the number of his aunt's house in California where his mother, Alice Hoagland, was staying. He was a passenger. The call was connected for only five seconds, but he called back the next moment later, spoke with a family friend first, then with his aunt, and finally with his mother, Alice. FBI agents interviewed Bingham's aunt and mother and recorded these notes. When the aunt answered the phone, the caller was Bingham and he said, this is Mark. I just want to tell you I'm on a plane and it's being hijacked. The aunt then got a piece of paper and asked him what flight he was on. He replied, United Flight 93. When Alice Hoagland, his mom, got on the phone, Bingham said, this is Mark Bingham. He stated both his last and first names, followed by I want to let you know I love you. I love you all. I'm on a flight from Newark to San Francisco, and there are three guys who have taken over the plane, and they say they have a bomb. I'm calling you from the air phone. His mom then asked, Who are they, Mark? Bingham was distracted and did not answer. His mom wasn't sure if he had heard the question. There was an interruption for approximately five seconds. Bingham then stated to his mother, You've got to believe me. It's true. And his mom said, I do believe you, Mark. Who are they? There was another approximately five-second pause, similar to the first when his mom heard activity and voices in the background. People were murmuring. There were no screams. Hoagland got the impression that Bingham was distracted because someone else was speaking with him, and then the phone went dead. According to Alice Hoagland's interview with the FBI, her son sounded calm, controlled, matter-of-fact, and focused. The call was connected for two minutes, 46 seconds, and when the call ended, Alice Hoagland called 911 to report what had occurred. 
she was eventually connected to the FBI. At 9.37, row 27, DEF, passenger Jeremy Glick dialed the number of his mother-in-law's home where his wife was staying. The FBI interviewing the family September 12, 2001, reported this. Jeremy initially spoke with his mother-in-law, Joanne, and immediately asked to speak with his wife, Lisbeth. After giving the telephone to Lisbeth, his mother-in-law contacted the FBI via her cell phone. Jeremy first told his wife that he loved her, and then he said that Flight 93 had been hijacked by three Iranian-looking males with dark skin and bandanas. One of the males stated that he was in possession of a bomb in a red box, and one was armed with a knife. That The hijackers had herded the passengers into the rear of the plane and told them that they were going to blow it up. The three hijackers then entered the cockpit. Jeremy advised his wife that he and four other male passengers were contemplating rushing the hijackers and asked his wife if that was okay with her. She said to him that she did not know if it was okay and asked Jeremy if any of the hijackers had guns, to which Jeremy replied that they did not. In a joking manner, as if to ease his wife's worry, he advised her that he and approximately four other male passengers were going to go get the butter knives. Jeremy then seriously told his wife that he and the other males were organizing to rush the hijackers. He told Lisbeth that he loved her, and he asked her not to hang up the telephone. They spoke for 20 minutes. During that time, the passengers were voting on whether to storm the cockpit and retake control of the plane. Elizabeth Glick kept the phone line open for a total of 126 minutes. This is the story we don't get to hear. Wendy Bell Radio Program continues right after this. We have a beautiful story to share with you on the next break, after the flip side of the next break. And I really encourage you to hang through this entire second hour of the Wendy Bell Radio program because we must remember, of course we will remember. And these phone calls from Flight 93 are so, they are so important. Not only were those 35, 37 calls so vital to telling this story that would piece together and ultimately send away a handful of the people who were allegedly responsible for what happened that day. And I say allegedly because we should always ask questions. And I have a hell of a lot. Seems like the more I read and the more I know, the less convinced of what I'm being told is. But I think that's the price of being awake. I think that is what it feels like to not believe everything that you're told. And the story we're going to share is, is very dear. And it is a celebration of these heroes. A celebration of flight attendants who really were the first responders that day. So among the, the recordings captured on the, on the air phones... On the back of the seats of United Flight 93, some names that you know, Todd Beamer, Jeremy Glick, Tom Burnett, who had spoken to his wife, called her back and was connected for 62 minutes, 62 seconds rather. And he was, he was detailing who had been killed on board. There was a woman on board named Lauren Grandcolis, and she called multiple times. 
she finally got through to her husband, Jack, on their answering machine at home, saying that the flight had been hijacked. The call was only 46 seconds long, but the transcript of the call, not released, but they wrote notes, the FBI did, when they listened to it. Lorena told her husband, Jack, that there had been problems, but she reassured him that everything was okay. Her voice was very calm, and there were no audible background noises. She told Jack numerous times, again and again, that she loved him. And she also told Jack to advise her family that she loved them as well. She then told Jack goodbye, and the call ended. What is it about this moment of knowledge that these 40 men and women aboard this flight knew about that didn't trigger panic, that didn't cause chaos, There was nobody screaming, no lunatic woman as it usually is in the movies who was screaming uncontrollably, breaking down. But a quick meeting of strangers who all of a sudden became one army. Led by those five men, Glick, Beamer, and others. At the beginning of the program, I said I believe that, that September 11th of 2001 was the beginning of this infiltration in our lives of people pretending they want to protect us from danger, from fear, to keep us safe, whether it's from terrorists or from a virus or whatever. The government doesn't keep us safe. When left to our own devices, we do everything that needs to be done. If the last 22 years have shown us anything, it's that. Who saved us from COVID? We did. There were Jeremy Glicks and Todd Beamers in zip codes all across this country who decided to roll. Who pushed back and said, screw you. I'm open for business. Come and try to lock me up. Take your mandates. Take your quarantine, take your rules, take your insanity and stuff it. I'm going to live according to my terms. That's what freedom is. That's what freedom is. Coming up, the man who pushed a flight attendant's beverage cart 300 miles from Boston to Shanksville. To Flight 93's final resting place. His voice next on the Wendy Bell Radio Program. Welcome back, my friends, to the Wendy Bell Radio Program. Friday, our good news kind of blew up on our face because poor Paul was pushing his his beverage cart through a, a huge hill like pass area. And we were talking about this guy as our good news story. And I was like, I love anybody who takes something that's tragic and makes it into an experience to call awareness to something. And his name is Paul Veneto. Am I saying that right, Paul? Welcome. <laughs> Paul, are you there? 
Oh, for heaven's sakes. Oh, oh, can you hear me? I got you, Paul. How are you? Welcome. Uh, you know what it was? It was my Bluetooth. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's just fine with me. How you doing? Are you here in Pennsylvania? Of course I am. I'm, I'm in the middle of the street with a fire truck and, and a few people vehicles behind me. I have sports uh, my team guys. And, so I'm coming in the back entrance of the 93 Memorial. Mm. I left out of, I remember me flower, I rose garden at 10 o'clock. Beautiful. And, uh, I'm entering, entering at noontime, so they have me come in the back entrance so I don't cause the traffic jam, I guess. So, I understand. Tell everybody, tell everybody di- what you did with that beverage card. You were a former flight attendant, and obviously what happened today... 22 years ago, you had your own roller coaster of experience with that, didn't you, Polly? Absolutely. I came in at 8 o'clock. I landed in Boston on the aircraft, 1.75. That's what I was on this morning. I hit the second tower. So I knew the whole crew on that airplane. And I lasted 10 more years flying. And uh, but I thought of this idea one year after 9 11 because these guys weren't recognized. I got family out here in the house waving to me, little kids. Right now, I got a fire truck behind me. So, um, yeah, so I needed to get these guys recognized because flight attendants. No one, you know, when those when those buildings came down, the whole world was in shock. And uh, I knew at that moment, when, they, when those buildings hit the ground, my stomach did too because I knew that people were gonna the enormity of that scene. They were gonna forget about what happened at the beginning of the day which is these guys were like trained terrorists on these airplanes, and they weren't trained for that. But as we know from the phone calls, they were able to accomplish a lot and give us information here on the ground what was going on up there. And as we know on 93, when they got the information of what was going on, they banded together with these passengers, and they stopped them from reaching the next target. So in my eyes, there isn't more of an American hero than those people untrained civilians they were the last line of defense in this country so i needed to do something that would get them recognition to give their families that were left behind comfort so i just didn't realize what this was going to turn into after me doing the first push from boston to ground zero 220 miles 20 days 22 days and then i came back i accomplished what i set out to do i needed national attention because the crews lived all over the country I ended up getting worldwide attention, and the gentleman donated a mobile home to me and said, keep doing what you're doing. So at that point, I decided I'll do the four routes of the four airplanes of 9-11. So here I am on the third one and the hardest one, uh, 300 miles from Newark Airport to Shanksville, where flight United 93 went down. So I'm at the finish line now. I got oh, two more miles before I enter the memorial. And uh, pretty special. My family, brothers, and sisters all came out to witness this. And my team members who, you know, took care of all the logistics for me. All I had to do was get ready and push every day. So it's not, I'm not, I don't do this to show I'm an athlete because I'm not. I do this because it's right. And I know I'm getting 
giving some comfort to the families that were left behind. So, Amen. I'm so still, you're so you're you're pushing a 50 pound uh, flight attendant's beverage cart. You pushed it 300 miles following the course of Flight 93. You're still pushing. You're on the last two miles of your journey. Tell me about a story of somebody along the way that has touched your soul. I can tell you a million stories, but I'm going to tell you the one that started this thing off. It, and it's just unbelievable what's happened to me out here. It's, it's just unbelievable. I wish I could have recorded all of them, but this one here was the people at Newark Airport. What they did to help me send this thing off was incredible. They literally had me go out on the runway, out on the tarmac, and push four miles to start off around the whole t- outside of the runways, all the terminals. Everybody was able to witness Jets taking off around me. Uh, it was just amazing. But when I came off the property, airport property, the first police station station that was escorting me, one of the cops got out of the car. And said, uh, three times he got out of the car, but the fourth time he got out, he came up to me. He says, Paulie, I found out I was going to be escorting you, so I went on your website, found out what you were doing. I was so excited to get to meet you. My brother was in one of the towers. I almost fell on the street. And then he finished by saying, but he made it out. He's, uh, he worked for a bank. And we've been trying to get him help ever since. 22 years, he's in deep depression. He lives two miles from here. So I said, here, give him my number, have a call. The next police force takes over, escort me, and my phone rings. And it's this guy who says, hi, my brother was just escorting you. He told me to give you a call. Do you mind if I walk with you? This guy came out on the street and started walking with me. And both of us were crying. And I'm getting emotional telling you the story. Because, because the next day, I was talking to seven police officers in another town. And a couple come walking up. And the couple, the gentleman says, I saw your mobile home. I knew it had something to do with 9-11. I need to tell you what I do. I help people that are still struggling with the aftermath of 9-11. I was floored. I said, I told the story about this guy the day before. And when I got to my hotel that night, I connected them together. And uh, that guy just called me this morning, about an hour ago. We stayed in touch. And he's... He said it was the first time in 22 years he felt like he was talking to someone that understood. So he's getting the help he needs. I'm, a, I'm no savior, but when I push this cart, I'm reaching people that haven't been reached, obviously. And now the fact that this guy has been suffering so long and he feels like there's some hope. That's why I say I'm just the guy pushing this cart. Everything else happens around him. It's just amazing. So... All that excitement on the tarmac, and to be out there for four miles, and knowing all those employees who witnessed this, there is nothing to meet that guy in the middle of the street, knowing that I affected somebody with just this little thing of pushing the beverage car. I'm so excited every day I start out because I know something special is going to happen. So, pretty, pretty, pretty crazy. Isn't that beautiful? I want to ask you before I let you go, because this is why the the connection is weird, because he's pushing, he's doing his thing. What about the kids? What's the message to the kids? Are you seeing them? Are they understanding? It's amazing, the kids. I love talking to the kids, especially when their parents bring them out, because I know the parents are telling them the story. But the kids get excited about the beverage cat, and they listen to the story, 
and they have signs made up gold poly. It's it's incredible. I've been able to speak to two Mennonite schools on this journey. So I knew I've been reaching people that have never heard the story. And to be able to speak to these kids, some of them were never even on an airplane. But to have to hear this story, I know that something special is happening with this beverage card. It's just amazing to me. I'm so grateful to be able to do this. And before one final question, Polly, and it's it's a personal one. You struggled with your own demons after 9-11. Oh, absolutely. I, uh, I, I, I never really talked about it uh, unless I'm asked about it because I never wanted it to overshadow the reason why I'm doing this. Believe me, today I'm eight years clean and sober on today, right now. But that's not... I, that's very important. Of course, I couldn't do this without that. After 9-11, I fell into an opiate addiction, and I moved for 10 years. And it's a, that's why I wear the miracle shirt, because it truly was a miracle that the obsession was lifted. So, yeah, I, I know it's, it inspires people, and I'm all for it, but I never want to overshadow why I'm doing what I'm doing. These people, it's been 20-something years. I have to make sure that they recognize and so it all, it's all happening the way it's supposed to happen, I believe it. I'm so, I, have no, I have nothing to hide about my addiction. It's just that uh, that story is told when it's supposed to be told, just like right now. I mean, uh, it's part of the story, but it's not the main story in my eyes. Amen. Just, I, uh, what would you like to say? Well, if, you could, if you could speak to those men and women who you knew, who were the heroes, the ultimate first responders 22 years ago, what would you say? Uh, well, I'm looking at their faces as I talk to you. I have their pictures on top of the car. And one of his mothers is going to be inside here. It's going to be Amy King's mother, who I've met for the last few years. And uh, the crew members, I really don't have to say much because they're watching me. I know they're watching me. And I'm just doing what they would have done for me. So I'm in a position where I was able to do it. I know there's plenty and plenty thousands and thousands of crew members that would love to be doing this that just can't do it. So I'm just saying, listen, we've been down here. We'll never forget. We're not going to forget. But not only that, we're going to honor you for your heroics, every one of you. So that's important to know when the family members put their head down at night. They know the country and the world recognizes a, a heroic action of their loved ones. Because as Americans, we're supposed to recognize heroes. And those guys are true American heroes going hand-to-hand combat. And, uh, you know, without any training, it's mind-boggling to me. So this act of pushing a beverage cart is nothing to fear. I have every option on the street here. Every option. Fire trucks, escort me, whatever. These guys didn't have any options, but they kept going. And we know that from the phone calls. So this is... Uh, You're a wonderful soul, Polly. Thank you, Polly's Push.org. Check him out. Godspeed. Dot com. I beg your pardon, Polly's Push.com. Keep keep walking, my man. Keep pushing. One more route to go next year, and we hope to catch up with you then, love. Yeah, one more bus to New York, and that'll be the fourth flight. Thank you for your heart. Thank you for sharing it with us. Thank you, Wendy. I appreciate it. Amen. Be safe. What a great, you know, there there's so many things that will happen individually in our lives. That was a collective, what happened on 9-11, right? It impacted everybody in a uniquely different way.
But to be able to take a spiraling depression and addiction and to flip the script on it and to say no and to find a purpose and a cause and to be able to put that cause into a mission and then to have the people back the mission special. Thank you to Polly. Polly'spush.com. Ladies and gentlemen, quick timeout. Much more of the Whitey Bell Radio program right after this. Isn't it amazing when you listen to somebody like a Paul Veneto from Polly'spush.com? who's tracing the roots of all four of those doomed airliners to their final resting spot. He has one more to do next year. And his point isn't to become a star, isn't to share his story, isn't to do anything other than to raise awareness about the men and women he knew, a career that is potentially dangerous every single day. And that is his mission. And then on the On the opposite side of this mission that undoubtedly helped Polly sober up and regain control of his life and find a mission and a meaning and a purpose, even if it's just for a month, a year, that's a hell of a long time to be in your 60s and to push a freaking beverage cart all over all sorts of terrain It's got to be ridiculously cumbersome, completely unwieldy, and he's got the resolve of of a freaking green beret. Let's go. I'm in. I'm laser focused. (laughs) And then on the flip side of that, you have this incessant lunacy of a group of people, and I'm going to say it's a small group of loudmouth people who fundamentally want to tweak America and turn it into something that it's not. Look, the firm, the firm no, the hard stop, the no way in all of our minds, if, if we live in realville, is anything that impacts children. I mean, anything that makes a planet ill or injects in them something that makes them nothing but a two-bit guinea pig is, is horrifying enough. But when we, when we really boil it down and we look at some of the stories that are absolutely inconceivable, this is a big one that pops up in my mind. You guys follow the story of the Oklahoma Elementary School? Because this makes sense. The Oklahoma Elementary School that in June, with the blessing of its Board of Education... Hired a new principal. Well, what was so great about this principal? Other than that he's a drag queen who's been charged with having child pornography before? Are you out of your mind? Yes. Yes. The answer is yes. Completely inappropriate. Isn't even scratching the surface. Quickly. A superintendent of an Oklahoma school district is calling for the immediate termination of a recently hired elementary school principal who performs as a drag queen and has faced child porn charges in the past. His name is Dr. Shane Mernon. He's a 52-year-old dude who's performing as Chantel Mandalay at a venue called The Boom. Hosting 
Thirsty Thursday and Sunday Night Karaoke, who participates in Drag Queen Story Hour with children, named the new principal of John Glenn Elementary School. And this got through a school board. This made it to a board of education that's now saying, no, we totally, we're totally down with this. We absolutely, that was 20 years ago that he got, that the whole child porn thing, that porn thing in general, they didn't have proof it was children. I mean, I'm sure he's fine. What? The school's district superintendent said, they're trying to indoctrinate children with harmful Marxist ideology. Dude, what? Who allowed this to happen? Who allowed this guy? The child porn charge brought against this guy, Mernon, was dropped more than 20 years ago during a preliminary hearing when it couldn't be confirmed if the photos on his electronic devices depicted minors. Ew! Western Heights Public Schools also acknowledges Mernon's past charges, but praises him for his, quote, outstanding reputation in the education field. He holds a Bachelor of Science in Elementary Education, a Master's of Education in Educational Administration, and a Doctorate of Education in Educational Leadership and Administration, the district statement says. We welcome Dr. Mernon to Western Heights, and we are so excited about his vision for John Glenn. And the community. In the world of drag queen performance, Mernon boasts the titles of Ms. Gay Oklahoma America and Ms. Gay Oklahoma USA. Who knew there was such a thing? In June, Mernon did a story hour at the Metropolitan Library System, perhaps even encountering some of the students who would then be under his tutelage. Ew! Not the first instance of drag queens infiltrating schools. New Jersey had it happen. A drag queen performer who happened to be a school board member. Calling the passage of laws restricting drag queen performances for children a disservice to young minds. Thank goodness. And what a shame that we have to say this. More than a dozen states have laws restricting public drag queen performances. The dude got out of education after this whole thing with the child porn or the porn on his electronic devices came out. He laid low for a while, considered joining the ministry in some capacity. Hell, why not? Get closer to young people before he slithered back in the back door and came back into education. These are the people out there. These are the people, if you're not paying attention to, who come into your child's life how on earth does this individual get past the parents and this is where we are purpose mission meaning goals using tragedy makes something magnanimous out of poly and then just people who suck who are constantly trying to infiltrate our roles as parents to get their hands on our kids? Full stop, not a chance. Speaking of parents and children, did you hear what happened with Scott Smith? The father whose daughter was raped in her high school ladies room by a dude pretending to be a chick? You know, he was arrested. He was charged. The dad was next. Hour three of the Wendy Bell Radio Program.